If you and your firm have recently found yourself working remotely, or if you're a seasoned cloud accounting expert, I bet you've struggled when it comes to communicating with your clients and getting the files or documents you need. You've probably tried separate apps for texting, email, a client portal, e-signatures, and file storage and realized that it just leads to chaos. Wouldn't an all-in-one client experience platform be a better option? Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Lysio, later in the episode. Back in 2017, not that long ago, the AICPA did a demographic trends report, finding that 9% of students enrolling into accounting bachelor's programs are black. That's less than the population, which is 13%. So we're already low there. But then as they move through the funnel, you go from 9% of students in accounting bachelor programs are black, only 4% of new hires by firms, by CPA firms, are black. And then of CPAs in accounting firms, only 1% are black. So I don't have details about PwC, but I'm thinking how many partners at PwC are black, do you think? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by OnPay. Paycheck Protection Program, CARES Act, unemployment insurance, furloughs, layoffs, cash flow, CDC guidance, employee safety, paid leave, tax credits. Tracking all of the constantly changing COVID-19 related information for your clients is getting overwhelming. With OnPay's COVID-19 Resource Center, you'll have a one-stop shop for your up-to-date HR and tax information. OnPay is an easy-to-use, full-service payroll and HR software that is the right fit for all your clients, whether they have just one or 500 employees, to stay organized, save time, and get compliant. OnPay includes deep integrations to benefit providers, workers' comp plans, QuickBooks, and Xero. Right now, Cloud Accounting Podcast listeners can get three free months of OnPay payroll service. Learn more, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash OnPay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-N-P-A-Y. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by PayPi. The line between a successful small to medium-sized business and a bankrupt one is often how much cash they have in the bank, how well they adapt to market changes, and how long they are able to remain cash flow positive during challenging times. PayPi integrates with QuickBooks Online and Xero to help put an end to cash flow problems. By using daily, weekly, and monthly forecasts, cash flow calendars, and powerful customized what-if scenarios, you can visualize your client's finances in clear and intuitive ways so you can take action and reshape their cash flow. PayPi identifies when extra cash is needed and can match your clients with the right financing options via screen lenders, and you can choose the best offer suited for your client's needs. Just for listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, PayPi is offering its fully functional unlimited companies license for free until August 31st, 2020. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash paypi. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash P-A-Y-P-I-E. Welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, another week. Here we are. And you're back in your closet. I went back to the closet. Like the kids are officially on summer vacation. Like they don't even have fake school at this point. And I might not come out of the closet for eight <laughs> weeks until school starts. And Arizona's particularly, it's tough. You know, obviously there's the curfew going on. Yeah, we've right? been in a week-long statewide curfew for one week. Which is tricky in the state of Arizona because it's so hot during the summer that you really can't do anything until 7 p.m. at night. At the earliest, at the earliest. And then everything's closed. So it's just been, you know, everybody's going a little extra stir crazy. I mean, we're pushing on what, day 120 of COVID? Yep. Staying at home and it's just, 
with three teenagers, they're just starting to go crazy and I'm starting to go crazy. So, And as you mentioned last week, it's challenging to do this show when so much of the country seems focused on all of this, uh, these racial issues, Black Lives Matter, the protests that are happening a few blocks away downtown in Phoenix. I'm just north of downtown. Like I can hear the helicopters and the flashbangs and, you know, the mall I went to in the morning got looted that night. And, and it's, it's hard to like want to just do a show about accounting and technology when you feel like this is not relevant, but I have some data that I wanted to share and some stories actually that relate to racial diversity in the accounting profession. So I, I think it's worth starting the show, talking a little bit about that and then jumping into our regular material. Yeah, absolutely. Because last week I made a comment about um, how tax policy dictates social policy. Yes. I've tweeted about that because I think ultimately us as a profession, that's an impact we could have. Yes, we can have an impact on who we hire and promote and who becomes partners at big firms, et cetera. But ultimately, if we if we see tax policy that is that's not equitable, socially speaking, right. right, we should probably we could we have the skills to and the systems in place in theory to fight against that, right? We're the profession that actually understands the tax code and how it changes behavior. So we can influence politicians. You know, the AICPA, for instance, has been very strong in lobbying about PPP. And that is a program that has massive social implications. Yeah. And so I tweeted out a couple of things, but I did get some listener feedback. Somebody did send me a direct message on Twitter and um, he said, would love to hear your thoughts on why the tax system is racist on the next podcast. I saw the tweets. I'm curious to hear from that point of view. Never really thought of it that Never thought of the tax system that way. Great podcast. So I think that's where you and I can jump in on this a little bit. I'm far from an expert on it. It's almost like I feel like I'm not an expert on racism. All right. I'm not an expert on tax code either, but I, <laughs> I, I, but I am intelligent and I can definitely see how A connects to B. And yeah. we can talk about some of those things. Well, I, I have w- one example that I'm aware of. Yeah. The mortgage interest deduction, it basically lowers the taxes of folks who own homes. Like I'm buying a home, I'm in escrow right now, and I'm looking forward to having that deduction again. And if you're a renter, you know you may pay the same amount for your housing, but you don't get a deduction. So you end up paying more in taxes. So that's just you know one example. Um, and then the way it impacts race is that if, if you know, from a uh, race standpoint, if, if, one group of people is more likely to own homes and the other is not, then, you know, that's, that has social implications there. It allows one group to build wealth and the other can't as easily. So, there's, there's one example. And I'm sure there's lots and lots of those. Somebody broke down the racial disparities of just the 1040. It came out January 30th. And essentially what they did is they took the Form 1040, Blake, and they went line by line and broke it down and explained how that line what the racial disparities are in that line of the tax form and then the next line of the tax form and the next line of the tax form. So, for example, there's the American Opportunity Tax Credit. That's that lifetime learning credit you can apply to college. Mm -hmm. Middle to upper class families are likely to benefit from this, but a lot of middle to upper class families are less likely to be people of color. And then students of color are more likely to receive other grants. The average uh, person of color or a minority is not receiving this tax credit. And then overall, over time, there's no proof that this tax credits actually have shown or these subsidies have shown um, any increase and in people minorities getting college degrees, like they're not helping. So essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a tax credit that exists 
but minorities don't get really any benefit from this tax credit. Over and over again, there's lots of examples of that. Uh, there's another article I saw where the um, the amount of deduction you can take in a for a disaster is capped at like 10% of your income. Mm-hmm. So if you kind of think about like, like the... Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So if you have more income, you can take more of a deduction for the disaster. But the impact of the disaster, if you're struggling to make $30,000 a year and a tree falls in your car and breach your roof of your house or whatever it is, right? Like the impact of that might be half of your income right? to, to get things back on track, but you only get to claim 10%. So there's just illustration after illustration after illustration of this that exists in the tax code. And if you just step back and look at it that way, you can right. really see it. And I think, I think it's important to say that like, this is not intentional most of the time, like it's systemic, uh, but we need to recognize it and maybe do something about it. I, I have some stats about police brutality. Now, I know that's not the tax code, that's not uh, accounting, but we are accountants and we like to quantify things. And this really helped me get my mind around the situation. So, this was uh, something that my father, who was in his early 70s, shared with me from Reddit. It's a subreddit called Data is Beautiful. And the users on the subreddit submit original uh, graphs and charts using real data. And then people upvote them or downvote them. And this one rose to the top. Uh, it's called People Killed by Police Forces, Annual Rate Per 10 Million People. And so the author of this chart looked at uh, a police shooting database from 2019, compared it to U.S. Census Bureau data on demographics, and then um, also killings by law enforcement officers by country, and put that all together and found that the rate, the annual rate per 10 million people in the United States uh, for police killings is 28. So, 28 people are killed by the police for every 10 million people living in this country, which if you extrapolate to the total population comes out to like around a thousand people a year. Now, where do we stand against the rest of the world? Well, we come in between Bangladesh and Mexico, 28 and 30 respectively, you have to go way, way up the chart to find countries that uh, we might think of as sort of like similar, the United Kingdom, Germany, Australia. The United Kingdom, where police are not armed most of the time, has a rate of 0.5. So, 0.5 versus 28. Now, what if you are black? Uh, because that rate for the USA is overall, right? If you are black, it is 57. So, we're talking double. And if you are white, it is 19. So we have an average of 28. For white Americans, it's 19. And for black Americans, it's 57. If you look at other charts that show the discrepancy in terms of if you're white or if you're black and you're unarmed and you're shot by the police, it's just dramatically greater. So I think people should just take that data for what it is. You know, if you're if you're black in the United States, you have a similar chance of being killed by the police as the population in Burundi in Burkina Faso, uh, in Congo. It's worse than if you are an Iraqi in Iraq or in Nigeria or Kenya. That, that is what it is, right? If you're, if you're a Democrat, you might not like something I heard on NPR about this when it comes to police unions and civilian deaths. So, I was listening to Planet Money, that podcast that you and I both love. I don't know if you saw this episode or heard this episode. Uh, it's called Police Unions and Civilian Deaths. And they interview an economist Rob Gillazoo, he studies the history of police killings and protests. He's got a paper that is coming out 
all about how do police unions and unionization of police departments affect the killing of minority groups. And his study finds, it's based on data from 1950 to 1980, when a lot of this unionization occurred, that after police officers gained access to collective bargaining rights, there was a substantial increase in the killings of civilians and overwhelmingly non-white civilians. So this is not necessarily an issue that is one side or the other, Democrat or Republican, because Democratic politicians overwhelmingly support unions. But unions could, in this case, be part of the problem because they protect police officers from having to take responsibility when they do kill people. So I, I just, I find that fascinating. You, may, you actually brought up a fact of like, is any of this purposeful, these tax policies? And I found an article that goes into the history of some of these tax policies and arguably, yes, it's purposeful. So there used to be in the state of, um, a lot of the states had a slave tax. You'd pay taxes on the number of slaves you own. And because of that, you would pay much lower property taxes. And so in the state of Alabama, this basically meant landowner, white landowners paid no property taxes. For their land because they paid it on people. On people. And so that just allowed them to just continue to accrue and transfer wealth from generation to generation. Mm. Then after emancipation efforts, right, they really tried to increase property taxes because they, were lo- they obviously lo- were losing revenue because they were no longer taxes on slaves, right? right. But they ultimately, um, the Alabama, Alabama lawmakers ultimately chose to just caps in on the property tax and instead, and that still stands to this day, right? And instead just do um, sales and excise taxes. And so they, like, so this stuff was done very purposely historically. Right. And, and sales taxes are highly regressive. So uh, there is a tie-in to all of this to the accounting profession and the big four because Tim Ryan, the chair of PwC in the United States, went on CNBC and detailed his firm's plans to combat racism. He said um, that, quote, employees are angry, they're upset, they're exhausted, and they want action. They want a heck of a lot more than just saying, we condemn the killing of George Floyd or many others, he added. So do you want to hear what PwC is going to do? Yeah, what's their plan? Their plan includes uh, one week of paid time for its 55,000 employees each year to volunteer at nonprofits, a two-year fellowship program for some employees to work on policy issues that combat racial injustice and discrimination, and donations to four social justice organizations. The company will also match employee contributions up to $1,000. And they're also creating a diversity and inclusion advisory committee consisting of employees across all levels of the company that will help build out its larger plan to address racial inequality. So what do you think about that, David? So is this just talk or is this a real plan? Exactly. Exactly. Right. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. This is what the accounting profession has been doing when it comes to diversity for 50 years is they're really good at talking about it, especially the big four, by the way. They're really good at talking about how they are so diverse and and everything. But then you look at the actual numbers and diversity is terrible at accounting firms, but especially at the large accounting firms. I mean, we're still having conversations in accounting about how we get more women partners the percentage of women who are partners at the big four, it's like less than 20%. And do you want to know what the percentage of black people in these accounting firms is? Oh, I, I think we've talked about this before. It's completely nominal. Back in 2017, not that long ago, the AICPA did a demographic trends report finding that 9% of students enrolling into accounting bachelor's programs are black. That's less than the 
population, which is 13%. So we're already low there. But then as they move through the funnel, you go from 9% of students in accounting bachelor programs are black, only 4% of new hires by firms, by CPA firms, are black. And then of CPAs in accounting firms, only 1% are black. So I don't have details about PwC, but I'm thinking how many partners at PwC are black, do you think? Like what percentage? If 1% of CPAs in all CPA firms are black, it can't be more than that at PwC in the partnerships. If they can't even get, you know, to 50% women, and that hasn't budged in years and years. So like here we have, you know, Tim Ryan talking about all this stuff and creating a committee and all that, but it doesn't actually ever change anything. They've had these committees forever, right? So something else has to change to create more diversity. It's, It's like... We're really good at talking about it. We're not really good at actually doing anything about it. Yeah, there was an article in the um, Accounting Today about how the accounting profession is responding to the George Floyd killing and anti-racism protests. And um, all basically, you know, the big firms and the state CPA societies are all releasing, you know, statements, right? Um, but all statements kind of like, as you read the article, they all kind of sound the same. It's that same, you know, tone. We're deeply affected. Um, we're going to... Uh, you know, we our 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 membership represents you know X number of members, and they come from many racist cultures, creeds, and ethnicities, right? We denounce all forms of racism, but it's all it all feels very like stamped, like yeah. like, like it's like what's the perfect statement we can re- uh, release right now in regards to this? Yeah, it's just it's talk, right? Of the six hundred and fifty thousand CPAs in the U.S., an estimated five thousand are black, according to the National Association of Black Accountants. I mean, I'd much rather see a commitment to we are going to lobby against racist tax policies, right? Like, well, you know, you know, here, here's a good one. I saw this on Tim Ryan's post. He originally put all this stuff up on LinkedIn as a post. And you go through the comments and, of course, it's like a zillion PwC employees sucking up to him. But there was one person in there who said, you know what? This is great, Mr. Ryan. I'm paraphrasing. I am curious to know. What percentage of your executive committee is diverse, non-white males? Perhaps you should fix the breakdown of diversity on your executive committee and make that more diverse first, and then it will trickle down because what you see at the top of the organization is what you get in the middle and at the bottom of the organization. And uh, I think that would be a great place to start. Because managers are just going to mimic and promote what do they have to do to get themselves permitted to the spot they want to be in? Exactly. They, they, they mirror what you do, not what you say, right? I, I just think it's just so wrong, actually, that he went on TV and did this without actually having a real plan to address it. I don't know how many emails you've gotten recently, David, from companies saying, we support Black Lives Matter, we stand with them and all this stuff. But like, you wonder, okay, is this just talk or are they actually doing anything about it? And you found a great article about how like you actually look at the SEC filings of a lot of public companies and they're donating money to politicians who voted against the NAACP like 90% of the time. Yeah. So, the NAACP does a uh, a grading of politicians, like an A through an F grading. Yeah. And a lot of these companies that are putting a post out there, you know, they, they great. They've done their obligatory Black Lives Matter tweet. Right. And basically they went and compared this to their, their grade by the NAACP. And they basically, these senators that they're donating money to 
are, are getting Fs. And so it's like, great, you have the lip service on this side, right? On the social media side. But on the other side, you're not really putting your money or your actions are not matching, you know, yeah. what your, what your yep. forward facing persona is. And to me, uh, the thing that is most upsetting about this is the hypocrisy, not necessarily any specific policy uh, recommendation or change. It's like, the fact that people are just talking about this and then not really doing anything about it. If you're not going to do anything about it, don't talk about it. And then uh, if you are going to talk about it, like don't, don't do something else like uh, behind the scenes that is totally contradictory to what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. And some of the ones that were specific about this um, city, huge, right? City group. Right? Yeah. The bank, the big bank. The bank. So like they, uh, they, their CFO tweeted out, you know, about how much they cherish diversity, et cetera. But then, you know, if you, they look into it, they donate to a bunch of senators and political people that have Fs when it comes to their mm-hmm. scores for diversity and supporting diversity. Um, and the tune of $180,000 they've donated. Um, and then some of those, they called out Google. They called out Amazon. You just can't say you want to do things better. You have to really work hard to change the system. So should we talk about the economy now? Yeah. The only thing I was going to, that ties in between these two, and actually this is a transition story. Okay. Have you heard about the payroll tax holiday bubbling up more now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was something that uh, President Trump floated at the very beginning of this crisis was give everyone a break from payroll taxes until the end of the year. Yeah. And now it feels like it's not just payroll taxes. It's like all small businesses might not have taxes. It's very gray of what this is. Right. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like it's a transition from kind of this tax policy and diversity thing to the economy. Okay. Right? It's, so this would be a good transition story. But ultimately, yeah. I think there's two p- points of view here. I think there's one point of view of like, keep giving people money, even if they're staying at home. So extend out that $600 a month unemployment. And then there's a set of people that are like, oh no, give them a bonus if they go back to work. But I, th- my, my opinion, that bonus of going back to work is totally one of these social racist policies because most people right now that are unemployed and that don't have an option to go get a job and go back to work are people of minorities. Mm-hmm. And so they would not get that extra money. It's not like they're choosing not to go back to work. And so they, they it's just a, this transitions right into that, how do you, the, the stimulation of the economy, right? And how do we do that and not keep doing these policies that impact, impact us socially? This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Lucio. Lysio is an all-in-one digital front office platform delivering the world's best online client experience. Lysio enables every client to easily communicate remotely with your team by turning everyone's smartphone into a secure remote workspace. The Lysio app allows you and your clients to communicate via built-in real-time messaging, share files, collect e-signatures on documents, digitally capture images, and track any tasks that your team or the client needs to complete so nothing ever gets lost in the shuffle. Lysio is more secure than using email, costs less than five or six separate apps, and gives you a private, distraction-free online space to work with clients. With integrations to Microsoft and Google for one-click sign-up and Zoom to instantly create meetings, your client will be onboarded in no time. When you're ready to get your clients and team out of their email inbox and off of multiple separate apps and into a modern, secure way of collaborating, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Lysio. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash L-I-S-C-I-O. Lysio, everything you need in one place. Let's talk about the jobs report. 
and the PPP. Because you and I have been really down on the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, you know, I think legitimately criticizing the 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 program. Well, it didn't get better uh, until we, we started criticizing it. Let's just be very clear. Yeah, like, there we until go. Until the criticism came, it did not get better. So Congress on Wednesday, the Senate, passed the House's bill changing the PPP forgiveness rules uh, in a very, very positive way. And President Trump signed it on Friday. Here are the changes. Current PPP borrowers can now extend their forgiveness period from eight weeks to 24 weeks. That's a big change that will help a lot of people qualify for forgiveness. Covered period can't extend beyond the end of this year. And now the apparel expenditure requirement drops from 75% to 60%. But here's here's the, they didn't get this quite right. Here's the problem. Uh, in In the bill, the way it's written, the 60% is now a cliff. So if you don't spend 60% of the money on payroll, you don't get any forgiveness, which they didn't intend to do. Uh, Representative Chip Roy of Texas, who co-sponsored the bill in the House, said in a House speech that the bill intended the sliding scale to remain in effect at 60%. Senators Marco Rubio and Susan Collins indicated that technical tweaks could be made to the bill to restore the sliding scale. So it was like a typo, like somebody just messed up. Yeah, they just... You know, it's complicated, right? And this is the problem with this whole thing is just way too complicated. And a lot of folks are out there saying like, God, just get get rid of it entirely. Don't just even, don't oh, make yeah. it easier. We'll jump into that. The, the yeah. just, just get rid of it. The whole, just, we can jump all these that requirements. Part. Yeah. But so so here's the, the rest of, of this. Yeah. Well, yeah, here's the rest of it. So now you can take 24 weeks instead of eight to restore your workforce levels and wages to the pre-pandemic levels required for full forgiveness. This has to be done by December 31st instead of June 30th. Uh, There are now exceptions for borrowers to achieve full forgiveness, even if they don't fully restore their workforce. So if you can prove that you tried to get your employees to come back to work and they didn't want to, then you don't have to count them in your FTE um, calculations. And then uh, new borrowers get five years to repay the loan instead of two. If you already have a loan, though it's not automatically extended to five years, you have to renegotiate with the bank which is kind of annoying for folks who went out. Essentially signing a new loan. Yeah, yeah, it's just, the interest rate is still 1%. Uh, and then businesses that took the PPP loans can also delay payment of their payroll taxes, which was previously prohibited under the CARES Act. You had to choose one or the other. And now you can do both. So that's that's all the changes. But again, a lot of people are saying, and I think you and I kind of agree with on this, like that it would be better for the economy and it would incentivize more people to take advantage of the money that is still left over, which is like $100 billion in the program that hasn't been taken uh, if they just got rid of these requirements and let it be a grant and don't even make it loans. It's just this, it's wasting everybody's time, this dance. The Consumer Bankers Association and the Bank Policy Institute, they've actually created a co-signed letter calling on Congress to just automatically forgive all Paycheck Protection Program loans under $150,000. Yeah. But uh, the stats on this were pretty interesting in the way they they had this logic. Obviously, they're solving for the bank's interest, but the banks don't want anything to do with this, right? Like they do not want to be fut- futzing with all these teeny little loans and tracking them and yeah, doing yeah. paperwork. So, so they're solving for their own interest, but they did um, provide a study that was pretty interesting. So overall, in summary, like they basically, that $150,000 mark would, uh, would cover 85% of the loans but only 26% of the loan dollars. Right. So, so it feels like a risk reward. It makes sense. Just cancel the whole thing, right? You'd still have to verify that it was used for payroll, like at at, the, at, a, at, a, at some level, right? But 
Well, that's easier to do than to have to do all these complex calculations. The, the loan forgiveness applications, yeah. right? And they basically think that esti- they, if they get rid of this, it's going to save small business owners almost $7 billion. Right. And it's, money that they would, it's money they would have to pay to accountants like me to do this for them because most small business owners can't do this. This is a hard application. I've looked at it. And I'm so glad that I don't have to do this because I use a payroll service that has been doing a great job with their forgiveness calculations reports that you can just generate automatically if you're running payroll in their system. I just press a button and it generates the report for me. But think about all those small business owners that aren't using something like that. I did something similar with um, OnPay. And so a research firm, AQN Strategies, found that combined the resources you need to apply for the loan. And then apply for loan forgiveness. Like the amount of resources you as a business owner are putting in to this is between two to four thousand dollars per small business. By the time you pay the third party costs and other costs, right? And then yeah. not only that, you might be spending twenty to hundred hours of your time to oh, get yeah. this done. And so it really, yeah. really adds up. And it, it, it's an interesting take because they they presented an argument that's not just about what's going to impact the banks, but really the impact of this on small businesses. And then even uh, Gene Marks, you see, he jumped on the bandwagon and, and ruined mm-hmm. opted for the hill. Yeah, yeah, he wants like forgive it all. Yeah, yeah, and his argument is kind of like, hey, you know, essentially at this point, if it's five years at one percent, it's a grant program. <laughs> like, just call it that. Forgive the debt and just move on. And yeah. This, like we were saying last week about this a little bit. Um, and, and and I think that you just said uh, Rubio and I forgot the other senator you said. Collins. Are they going to pr- propose new changes again? Yeah, they want to tweak it a little more. Yeah. And extend the confusion. So it's just like, just yeah. wash our hands of it at this point and, and be done with it. And I actually think it's going to happen. Well, for all the confusion, there has been a lot of good from the PPP program because we got our jobs report out for May. And amazingly, nobody predicted this. We had job growth in May. 2.5 million jobs were created. I, I don't know why I need to say this because I think everyone in, everyone who pays any attention to business news has heard this by now. So, apologies, listeners, if this is redundant. But you know, we had 1.4 million jobs um, lost in March, 21 million jobs lost in April, and then we actually had job growth in May. So, we stopped the bleeding. And I think the PPP owes some credit for that. There was a great story in the New York Times called What to Make of the Rebound in the US Jobs Report. And a business owner, Chris Elliott, the chief executive of Beef O'Brady's, a Florida-based chain of more than 150 sports bars, talked about how his business was down 62% in April when its dining rooms were closed nationwide and its only business came from takeout. But only a handful of the chain's restaurants have closed permanently, in part because nearly all of its franchisees received Paycheck Protection Program loans. The damage would have been much greater without PPP, I can tell you that, says Chris Elliott. So, half of the jobs gains in May... 1.4 1.4 million were in restaurants and bars, many which received assistance under the PPP. So that's a success. People were questioning, like, where's all the business bankruptcies, you know? And you're right, something kept a lot of small business restaurants from going under. And you're right, it could be these PPP funds, they enabled just to keep the door open. Uh, a lot of them pivoted to delivery type services. And now that states are starting to open up, you know, if they're if the restaurant's going to open back up, they're going to have to bring back one or two employees, right? And so it explains yep. kind of the growth and how this is tied together, far from perfect, but... And, and a lot of the bankruptcies were anticipated to happen because businesses wouldn't be able to pay their rent. But 
a lot of businesses have successfully worked with their landlords to reduce or delay rent. And the landlords have been able to work with the banks to reduce or delay their mortgage payments or refinance or add the payments onto the end of the term. And that's because the banks are getting essentially financing from the federal government because Chairman Powell of the Fed worked very, very quickly to get massive amounts of money out to create liquidity into our banking system. So that has worked really well. And like you said, there haven't been a lot of bankruptcies. We will see what happens though long-term, right? Because as we talked about, coronavirus is not going to be a short-term economic hit. It's going to be a long-term hit. Accounting Today had a survey from the AICPA of almost 1,200 CEOs, CFOs, controllers, and other CPAs across U.S. companies. Only 20% of the respondents are optimistic about the U.S. economy's overall outlook over the next 12 months. And that's down from 61% in the first quarter when you know we didn't have any concerns really about COVID-19. So, it's going to take a while to get back to normal. Uh, and the question is going to be, you know, how long will this stimulus last? Because PPP, right, is even though it's extended now, a lot of people have been using the money over the last two months as if it wasn't. So that money is going to start running out this month. And all are those they going to let people, people off? That, yeah, all those people that got that first wave, the PPP yeah. V1, it's been eight weeks. If there's not more stimulus, which the Republicans in the Senate Mitch McConnell has not expressed a lot of enthusiasm about doing more stimulus. Will we see job losses? Will we see business closures and bankruptcies? Uh, it's just a question is how quickly can the actual economy recover without stimulus? And nobody really knows the answer to that. There's an article in Insightful, an insightful Accountant about how small business accounting and finance teams are responding to COVID. And the real big takeaway here is, uh, so this is a survey done by Sage Intact. They've mm-hmm. uh, surveyed nearly 400 finance and accounting professionals. So you're, you're looking at this is going to be, you know, mid-size, larger mid-sized businesses, yeah. right? And basically, they're really the, the just their accounting teams are being asked by their boards to really dig into the deep part of the books to cut costs, like what can be cut. Like 75% of that is their work that they need cut and then revise the revenue projections and then focus on budget planning for the future. And I think that's something that you could take down to your smaller clients. Those are probably the things you need to be working on with your smaller clients right now. Reducing costs, figuring out the revenue projections and that cash flow, and then focus on planning for the future. Even just creating a budget. A lot of businesses in economic prosperity don't even budget because they don't need to because their business models are working. But now is the time to do it and, and create those cash flow projections and offer those services uh, in, a, in a productized way. I actually create a deliverable. Like we are going to give you, we're going to give you a short-term cash flow forecast every week and a long-term business forecast, 12-month forecast uh, that we update every month and make that part of your CFO package. And, and businesses will will pay for that to have the certainty and to know that somebody's looking out. And I still think you can value price this. Like, oh, hey, yeah. 18 months from now, if you're doing better, now you can pay me at that point. Yeah. And you're going to pay me nicely, right? If, you, if you've helped them get through these, these waters. Yep. Uh, assuming they don't get hacked, I'm going to go into a security news. Yeah, let's talk about that. And then I've got something about stimulus payments. And it's not a security problem, but it's like uh, uh, internal controls, let's say. Okay. Well, this, this actually could very well lead into internal controls. Okay. So, the, uh, accounting, so I saw this headline go by, but I didn't like catch it. 
It said accounting group CPA victimized by cyber attack. Some data on 329,000 people was stolen. So this is the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada group. So this would be like the AICPA. Mm-hmm. So somebody, there was a cyber attack on its website and the personal information from more than 300,000 members was stolen. Wow. 329,000? Yes. What, what kind of so information are, so, so this was... is going to be, think about this. This is the email addresses, the names, your physical addresses, your employer names, but not your passwords or credit card numbers because apparently those were encrypted, was all stolen. Now, these are accountants and bookkeepers. Now, why would you want a list of accountants and bookkeepers email addresses? I'm going to go and do phishing attacks. That's what I'm going to do if I'm a hacker. And you cross that against those other hacks where email addresses and passwords have been leaked. And I'm sure of that 300,000, there's plenty of you accountants and bookkeepers out there that are using the same password you used to play that Zigna game, Word with Friends, that you used on your client's files and you probably used on this. So they're going to be coming. <laughs> like, wow. like you have to basically. If, if you're a CPA, you're going to have to put in rules and diligence for your whole entire staff about them opening any emails, external emails, because the attacks are going to come now. I mean, if you thought they were under attack before, because now they're going to be very focused because they know your accountant. Mm-hmm. Before they just had random email addresses, but these are very, very specific. I mean, the, I can imagine the black market. Like, what it, this list probably is uh, worth some extra money. Uh, so going back to the PPP when it comes to like problems with configuring systems, like you said, uh, protecting (laughs) money data. The SBA did not have the best systems in place for processing these loans and probably still doesn't. And so we got a number from uh, Reuters that kind of exposes just how bad this was or the impact. At least 1,020 duplicate deposits were issued for PPP. So people got PPP loans twice or three times and could roughly result in $116 million of, of overpaid PPP money. Well, good thing you have that tw- – now that you have those extra weeks to use it, that's, that yeah. works out. <laughs> you have three times the well, to use it now. So the problem was that what happened was people were uh, applying for PPP through their bank, like Bank of America, and then not hearing anything back and getting frustrated and then going and applying through some alternate lender like Cabbage or Bluevine or Square. And I guess – these banks then and fintechs were, you know, they didn't know that that people had done it twice. And so they were then reserving the loans and somehow uh, the SBA gave out approved more than one loan per borrower. So they weren't, you know, I think it's because they weren't linking the uh, loans to EIN numbers at the beginning anyway. It's a small amount in the big scheme of things, but, uh, you know, in terms of percentage of the whole program, but $116 million is a lot. And you wonder if they're ever going to get that back in a lot of cases. Bank A has no idea that you got money deposited in your bank account from Bank B. Right. Like, I guess it would only be, they'd only really only figure it out if the same bank deposited the money same three times and, and set up three separate loans for you. But outside of that, you're right. Like, how's, how's this going to reconcile up? Is it ever going to, will anybody even detect or figure that out? Well, it, the banks might be on the hook for it because um, the SBA is only going to forgive one loan. So it's up to the bank then to recover that money that they gave out. But then you just fill out the forgiveness paperwork for that loan with that bank and just now you have a five-year loan for 1%. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of these businesses may not survive long enough to pay back the money. That's the thing. Um, and you can't go after the individual because the the loans are not secured by a personal guarantee. So it's a risk for the banks. Yeah. Um, 
You want to get into app news? Yeah, why not? Let's jump in. Okay. Let's talk about Zoom. So Zoom released its quarterly results and just crushed its earnings estimates. They doubled its revenue guidance. Their sales soared 169% to $328 million amid the work-from-home and study-from-home booms resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. This is according to CFO.com. Adjusted net income rose $58.3 million, or $0.20 cents a share, from $8.9 million, or $0.03 cents a share, in the year-ago period. Amazing. And of course, their stock has just soared. Meantime, Microsoft now of course, has like woken up to this whole video conferencing thing, which is so funny to me because Skype has been around for so long and has sucked for so long, right? Yeah. So, Microsoft has finally been scared by Zoom just the same way they were scared by Slack and they have upgraded their video conferencing features in Microsoft Teams. So, now you can see a gallery view in Microsoft Teams where you can see up to 49 participants in a call at the same time, just like in Zoom. And... I got to use this for the first time. I was on a call with Sage. I downloaded the Teams app for Mac, which I'd never used before, and I jumped on, and it was great. Really good experience, similar to Zoom. So there you go. I mean, yeah, Zoom, the the explosion of Zoom has threatened so many people. Facebook had to respond to it by improving their video chat because essentially Zoom became a social network, which threatened Facebook. Obviously, Google, so everybody would be in Google. They would not use the Google video chat. They would schedule your meeting and use a zoom instead yep if you're using google calendar and obviously with microsoft like it's amazing the the ripple effect that zoom has had on all these other companies that have had to chase now yeah and i mean they obviously could catch up this could slow things down for zoom um i'm actually possibly and i'm gonna say i'm in the market to look for something else but so zoom had those security issues before right mm-hmm. yeah and so zoom they've been addressing those and they keep adding things to zoom but i also feel like zoom Every twice a week, I open it and features are moved or they're different or there's more secure. <laughs> and now it's starting to be honest. I'm making WebEx jokes. Remember how in WebEx, the old Cisco WebEx, you'd have to give somebody the ball so they could present? Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like this dance now exists in Zoom. Like, oh, you got to make somebody else a host so they can present. And it's just like, I, like is, is Zoom going to be inconvenient? Right. And, and the bigger problem I've always felt like with Zoom is great product, their their menu and preferences and pricing structure is a nightmare. And so every like I have one meeting, I don't have to keep handing people the ball. I go to another meeting, I gotta figure out how to make them the, the Zoom host. I'm like, I don't even know what setting is what on each meeting, why one works one way and one's the other. So Zoom's kind of they they're gonna have to streamline now they have competition, they're gonna have to clean up some of their rapid mistakes, if you want to call them yeah. that, the way they've been implementing things. So it's funny that you brought up uh, Microsoft, because I actually have an article about Teams as well we can jump into. Yeah. And before we do that, I want to just add to your point about Google. My company is on Google Apps, and we don't use Google Hangouts. And one of the things I've always been frustrated with about Google Hangouts and their whole video conferencing is that like it's super resource intensive. Like I run a, a Hangout, and my computer is sweating when I'm on that Zoom or I use the word Zoom because that to me is like synonymous with video conferencing now, right? I use their video chat and it just doesn't work. Well, I don't know how, what they're doing about the resource usage and making it better in that regard, but they did make Google Meet free for all uh, Google uh, users uh, on the free Gmail platform. So now if you have a Gmail account, you can just launch a Google Meet video meeting, which I think is based on the Hangouts technology. And, and just do that for free because, uh, you know, everybody's scared of Zoom's free plan, right? You can have a meeting up to like, what, 30, 45 minutes. 
uh, for free. And you're right about the, these uh, these video conferencing apps just bringing your computer to their knees. Yeah. I'm actually I, I'm actually eyeballing a new device, I, and I can put this in the link. Uh, Lenovo released a Chromebook, mm-hmm. but it's it's really a tablet with a detachable keyboard, so it's similar, almost looks and tastes and like kind of like a Microsoft Surface a little bit. But it's a Chromebook, so it's running Google's Chrome OS. But it's but they call it the Duet because you can also install Android apps, mm. so you're not stuck with just the desktop, you're, 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 it's wide open. And I'm, so I've been eyeballing that a little bit, uh, myself. I can't, can't buy it anywhere, but it's coming in at a price point of $300. So that's great. Cause then you could just use that for the video conferencing, video and conferencing, for, and not exactly. load up your computer. But if I have the desktop share or, or browser, I could still do that. Right. Just enough. Yeah. So I'm considering doing something similar when I move into my new home office, I am going to set up a zoom room in my office just for myself so that I can go and like sit on the couch and have a meeting without having to sit in front of my computer all day long. And that way also it's not going to bog down my computer. It'll be like more like having people in the room kind of situation. Like you I'm, I'm make- up on the wall type of a situation. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a TV with a nice webcam. They have all these kits you can do and they go from like cheap to really thousands of dollars. I'm not going to go crazy, but I'm going to, it's going to be separate from my computer so that when I have a meeting, I can actually walk over and like sit down at a, you know, conference room type table or on a couch or something and, and have a meeting with somebody like I used to in the office. And I think it'll be a worthwhile investment. I'll let you know how it goes. No, definitely. Cause I, I, I want to, uh, I, I want to build an office at my house now because I cannot stand in closets anymore. <laughs> and, and, but I, I do have plans to build like a little recording studio, which would be perfect for the show. But yeah. uh, obviously you're still in zooms. You're still doing these things. So I'll, I'll be excited to, I'm sure our listeners as well. Like how, what, what is the ultimate home office? Like everybody's going to be, that's going to be the new man cave now, right? That everybody's, everybody's going to one up each other's home offices. We'll we'll have to do a comparison. Once you have yours built and I have mine, we can do like a walkthrough and people can vote. Yeah. Well, who's the best? So, so on app news, um, I do want to talk about an actual accounting app. Well, before you because, jump in, I, can, I have a yeah. Microsoft Teams news. Oh, tell me Microsoft Teams. And so, there, it was an article. Um, it's just titled, Top Three Ways to Get the Most Out of Your Microsoft Teams for Your Small Business. And And usually, to be honest, like, I would not click and read these articles, but I just know a vast majority of accountants and accounting firms are already using Microsoft Office 365, which is actually called something new now. I think it's just called Microsoft. They, they've, <laughs> they've dropped the word office, I think, apparently. Okay. And, and because because of, we're not in the office anymore, right? <laughs> <laughs> possibly. possibly. And so, but I, I think because of that, you know, people would get things like Teams for free and other things. But did you know that Mike, part of this article, it, it goes into like, hey, you should use Teams to share files. Like, duh. You should use uh, the planner to manage workflows and keep track of to-dos. But mm-hmm. did you know that Teams has a feature called Shifts? What, what is this? To manage your payroll, time off, working hours, your employee schedules, and more. I had no idea. Me neither. And so it's something like if you have a client that, you know, they need to do a... They need to do time tracking. They need to, and they have their employees remote and they're on Microsoft Teams. This could be a possible solution. Um, Good. Versus buying like a big old integrated package. If you're already paying for Teams, you just get this for free. Now, I don't know um, who it integrates with, if it it integrates with their payroll providers, right? Or if this data is just like, boom, it's an Excel file now. And now what do you do with it? But Mm -hmm. um, it it is available. It's out there. You have built-in time tracking in your Teams products if you're using Teams. Well, that's great. All right, so my last app news story is Zero and their latest updates. 
Zero has been kind of quiet with updates for the US for a while, but there's some really neat stuff coming out. I don't know if you've seen the new business performance snapshot. Actually, it's just called business snapshot now. It's in pilot. I guess that's what they call beta and has been rolled out to all zero business customers. So you can now access that in the reporting module. It's a really simple way for business owners to get an idea of their key metrics. So profitability, their profit and loss versus uh, this fiscal year, last year, their income with charts showing over time and compared to the previous year, expenses, gross profit margin, their balance sheet, financial position, like really basic KPIs. Did they build this on their own or did they partner with a third-party app and they're actually just kind of embedded the third-party app in? No, this this looks to be built by Xero. Okay. In in zero. And it's got that zero feel. It's like very clean, lots of white space. It's it's very basic information, but like really good information to present. Uh and, and just I think it's gonna be more helpful for the end users than the accountants because it's like super basic information that we can read off of the financial statements. But for people who aren't familiar with reading financial statements, like this is a great way for them to get a picture of what's going on and could be useful because you can print it to PDF and share it with your clients and all that stuff. And at QuickBooks Connect, I mean, Intuit was kind of showing some of this for accountants, this like a dashboard, and then you could enable some widgets for your clients. Like how much of an impact do you think this is going to have on the third party? I mean, there is a lot of dashboard widgety yeah, reporting tools that add on to QuickBooks and Zero. Like, what do you think the impact is if if these tools are just good enough for most businesses? Exactly. So, is it gonna is it is it gonna be a taste where like this is great? I love it. Like, I want more. Mm-hmm. Is it gonna be that, or is it just gonna be like I'll never use a third party app because this is good enough? So, this is like a lot of features that QuickBooks and Zero have been building into the app, where previously only third party solutions have done it. And I'm paying a lot of attention to this because at Giraffe we do dashboarding. That's like one of the features we offer. Uh, but that is like not the main value proposition. And I think that if you are an app that does dashboarding, that should not be your main value proposition because that is something that these accounting systems are going to do. So you need to do way more than that, right? Than just visualize data. So like, for instance, we pull in operational data so you can do KPIs that relate operational and financial data. And I don't think QuickBooks and Zero are going to have statistical accounts the way Sage Intact does for a very long time, where you can pull in non-financial information as well. Like that's a, a big thing for them to do. So yeah, the key is, you know, just the same way um, with timesheets, right? Now you can track your time in zero projects, you can track time in QuickBooks. Well, does that mean you don't need a separate time tracking solution? You might if you need more advanced functionality. It depends. Yeah, it depends on where yeah. you're at in life cycle of your business and size, et cetera. Yeah. Niche. You need a mobile app to be able to track time. Do you need it to do it automatically? Do you need it to automatically import to your payroll? Like all that stuff. So the other thing along these lines that Zero has released is super exciting. It's a short-term cash flow projection. Again, this might scare some of the apps that do this. It's a very basic short-term cash flow projection though. And and basically what it does, it takes your bank balances. You can choose like operating accounts. And so it takes, it sums up the, the balance in your operating accounts and then projects cash flow over time based on the bills and invoices that you have entered in the system and the projected payment and collection states that you have entered. and allows you to then very easily modify those dates to see what will happen to your cash flow and if you're going to stay positive or go negative. And I imagine that ties into, because Zero announced they're getting into that uh, finance and loan game. 
as well, right? So I imagine that cash flow mm. ties in, it ties into yeah. them pushing people. Oh, your cash flow is low. You should probably get a loan. You know. Yeah, and maybe they're using this technology to you know actually project cash flow for businesses so they can offer them the loans too, right? They need to calculate this information themselves. So um, I think it's pretty neat and shows you how you know the the cloud accounting uh, GLs are developing features that the desktop solutions never had. So it's no longer about adding functionality that desktop has. It's about adding functionality it never had ever. That nobody's ever had. Yeah, never existed. I saw that Zero delayed their price hike indefinitely. Oh, yeah. So they plan on uh, raising prices, which, you know, when especially in the uh, Australian marketplace, if you're number one, you raise prices. And two, it's been doing that with QuickBooks here in the States. Um, And but they've because of the COVID-19 fallout. So they just start capping that and writing out their current price structure, which in my understanding, like zero, if you're in the AU and New Zealand um, markets is definitely more expensive than it is in the US market. Is this like from a... Yeah, because in... And it makes sense because it's a real practice management solution in those markets where you have integrated accounting and tax, which is like something that we've never had here end to end. And so there's a lot more value for accounting firms. They can... And, and I, I bet if you added up what accounting firms spend on tax software and accounting software, it would come out, you know, to be similar. Okay. Right? So it's like, that's why it's like twice as expensive in Australia and New Zealand. I, it's, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's a lot more. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's been my understanding as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking with Australia, QuickBooks is, um, you know, we see it, we, uh, QuickBooks has the receipt capture, receipt and bill capturing. Yeah, that's a relatively new thing, right? And they rolled it out to US and they rolled it up to Canada and now it's being rolled out to Australia as well. Cool. So which which is they probably intuit probably really need in Australia first because essentially Zero has that with HubDoc, the HubDoc acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. They've two receipt and bill capturing. So you know, I've always got more that I could talk about. I feel like you and I could talk for hours. <laughs> but we try to keep it under an hour, which is probably more than most of our listeners can handle. So thank you folks who are still listening. We appreciate it. Going to the end with us. We slipped a little bit this time. If people want to reach you online, David, and give you a piece of their mind, what's the best place for them to do that? Um, Twitter is by far the best place, but you can also use LinkedIn. I'm at David Leary at either one of those services. I'm at Blake T. Oliver. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I request, please tell me that you are a listener. Say you listen to the show so that I can accept your connection. And I know you're not a bot. And if you want to leave us a voice message, you can do that too. We've got a Google voice number set up. It's 202-695-1040. That is 202-695-1040. You can give us a call, tell us what you think, and we'll take a listen. We might even play it on the air. I think that's a wrap. I have no more articles. Stay safe. Stay sane. I'll see you here next week. Next week. Time for the classifieds. Did you know that in response to the COVID-19 situation that you can now take your Microsoft Excel certification from home? Want to learn how? You can by joining Steve Chase's Excel Bootcamp. His summer classes run Monday through Fridays from 3 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. Central Time. Register online at sequentiasolutions.com bootcamp for only $150. If you mention the Cloud Accounting Podcast referred to you, you'll receive an extra $30 off. High school students are highly encouraged to sign up and you can find the link in the show notes.
AccountingTax.com has helped more than 8,900 tax accounting and wealth management firms map out a client experience through client acquisition, conversion, onboarding, retention, and expansion with the goal of getting clients to pay more year over year. If you're looking to develop your practice and take it to the next level with advisory services, go to AccountingTax.com forward slash cloud to learn more.